Hey everyone, Jason here. Before we get going, I want to thank today's episode sponsor, which is Ren, an easy way to offset your carbon footprint on a monthly basis. I've been a supporter and an investor in Ren for the past eight months and enjoy the transparency I get into the tree planting project that I support. Each month I get stories, photos, and data from on the ground. And since offsetting is not a replacement for emissions reduction, Ren also shows me the best ways I can reduce my carbon footprint. If you're ready to take some personal action against the climate crisis, you can learn more at Project Ren, which is projectwren.com forward slash MCJ. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Ann Simpson, Senior Portfolio Manager, Investments, and Director of Global Governance at CalPERS. CalPERS is the largest public pension system in the United States with approximately $300 billion in global assets. Ian is leading CalPERS' sustainability project to integrate environmental, social, and governance, also known as ESG factors, across the total fund. Ian is the first person that I've had on the show from a big pension fund, and she did not disappoint. We have a great discussion about CalPERS' work, when and how ESG first started becoming important to them as an organization, where they are now in transitioning their portfolio of holdings to clean, how they're going about it, what barriers are holding them back, how Anne thinks that they can move faster, and also just her advice for how people like you and I can help. Without further ado, Anne Simpson, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for making the time. I'm really excited for this one. This is actually... I want to say it's a hundredth episode, or if it's not the hundredth, it's right around there. But this is the first one I've had with a big pension fund or one of the biggest pension funds. And it's a real honor to be able to have this discussion today. All right. Well, count me as a humble servant of a very big pension fund. That might be the way to put it. Well, maybe for starters, since I'm sure most listeners are familiar, but in case anyone isn't, maybe talk a bit about what is CalPERS. So CalPERS stands for the California Public Employees Retirement System. And that was set up nearly 100 years ago to take care of state workers in their old age. CalPERS has grown over time to now include almost 2 million people, and their day jobs could not be more varied. We cover the judges of California, but also the janitors that clean schools and universities, environmental scientists, firefighters, university professors. People who clean up the rivers and streams and trim the trees and look after the physical environment of California. So these nearly 2 million people rely on CalPERS for two things. One is for their health care, and the other is to provide them with a basic income in retirement. And the way that we do this is we receive contributions from those nearly 2 million people. They have money deducted from their paycheck every week or every month. And then their employer also puts money in. And 
Unfortunately, that is not enough to cover what people need in their old age for the many years they might live. So we also invest the money that we receive from the workers and from their employers. And right now, for every pension dollar that we pay out, about 60 cents comes from investment returns. So that explains really why CalPERS is probably known for its role in finance more than for its role in paying pensions or even paying health benefits. The accumulation of all that money over many decades has just topped $400 billion. It'll bounce up and down a bit with market volatility, but it's an enormous sum of money. And it makes CalPERS one of the top 10 largest pools of private finance in the world. So that's good news for the employers. It's good news for the workers because it means we are building up this pot of money to help contribute towards their pension and also to sustain their health benefits as well. But it also means that CalPERS is influential in the financial markets just by virtue of our size. And also because we're a pension fund, we're very long term. So when we start looking at issues like, say, climate change, it really is because we have not only one generation to think about, that's our current pensioners, our retirees, but we also have an obligation to think about the people just joining the scheme who may not retire for another 30, 40 or 50 years. So even if the doors closed in the morning, we said, okay, CalPERS is being shut down. We would have to be investing and paying pensions out for probably the best part of 100 years, which is what officially gets called our liabilities. That's all the people to whom we owe a pension or health benefits and their dependents, people in their family or people who are relying on them. So once you've got this very large pool of money, it means we're globally invested. We're too big to hide anywhere. And once you've got nowhere to hide, You need to deal with systemic issues like climate change. And then the other dimension is not just being too big to hide for safety anywhere in the world. Because of our very long-term investment horizon, issues which accumulate over decades and even over generations are something that CalPERS really has to pay attention to because it's going to impact our ability to pay pensions, which is our prime duty. And then what about your purview within the organization? What are you thinking about as, I believe it's the Director of Global Governance. Did I get that right? Once upon a time, that was my title. I've had several, I'm in my third role at CalPERS. I first joined CalPERS just over 10 years ago as a senior portfolio manager in our global equity asset class. And I was responsible for what was then called our corporate governance program. So what does that mean? Governance is a rather odd word. Well, if you think about government, That's how that idea gets described in the political sphere. We understand what government is. It's where we have a system for ensuring decisions are made for the exercise of power and for ensuring accountability. And when we say corporate governance, we essentially mean the same thing, but applied to companies. And why is that important? Well, because companies themselves have become so dominant in the global economy. And even compared to when I was a child, you cannot get yourself out of bed and to your place of work without bumping into probably a dozen or more big companies. 
whether it's companies providing you with water from your tap, coffee, your phone or internet connection, the car that you might get in, bus if you're lucky, or bicycle, every single element of our lives, including maybe any vitamins or pills you might need to take along the way to get you to work and keep you feeling well. So the rise of the corporation has really meant that corporate governance has become an extremely important issue. So that was my first job, was thinking about what CalPERS could or should be doing as a part owner of companies where we invest money. And then my second job came several years later, and it was really as we were bumping into a whole range of issues that didn't fit in a neat and tidy way into corporate governance thinking. We went rather beyond that. And it was in the wake of the financial crisis that CalPERS really went into a period of quite deep reflection about well, what is investment all about? What are these financial markets all about? CalPERS went into the crisis with, if you like, enough money in the cookie jar. We had 101% funding. That means if we owed $100, we had $101 in the kitty to pay. We had a little cushion. We came out of the financial crisis with only $65 in the cookie jar, and we still had $100 to pay because the pensions and the health liabilities, what we owe hasn't changed. And if anything, it's got bigger because of the demographics of the baby boomers going through the system. So what do we learn out of the financial crisis? Money that's here today and gone tomorrow is a very alarming experience to go through. And when you've got nearly 2 million people relying on that money for their health care and for their pensions, this is a crisis of gargantuan proportions. So we, with our board, went into this period of reflection to really think about, well, where do we think investment returns come from? And how do we understand risk? What's our new understanding of risk, given what's just happened to us and the beating that we took, along with millions of others in the US and around the world? So we decided that what CalPERS needed was a set of investment beliefs. If you like a credo, what is it that we as a pension fund actually believe about where money comes from and what the risks are that we need to address and what's our purpose? So over a two-year period, we developed a set of investment beliefs. It was quite a halting process. It's quite difficult. If you think if you get a financial organization our size and say to everybody, okay, what are the 10 things you can all agree on, apart from which day of the week it might be? How is that going to guide what you do in investment? So these 10 beliefs evolved through a process of consultation. And we also had a lot of stakeholder input. We had open meetings where stakeholders could come and talk about the issues that they thought were important and should be included. So these 10 investment beliefs, you can find them on the CalPERS website, and they were adopted in 2013. And they've been looked at and reviewed a couple of times by the board, but they're serving as well. And there's several ideas in those investment beliefs which transformed the approach that we have to finance. One of the beliefs, number two, states that being long-term is both an advantage and a responsibility. So the advantage, obviously, is that you should be able to ride out volatility in the market. You should be able to invest 
in promising opportunities that might not bear fruit for some time. That's all good. But the responsibility that we identified is that the markets themselves do not operate in that way. Or if they do, it's a sort of rather chaotic version of accumulated short terms, which in itself doesn't necessarily add up to something long term. So we call out that we feel we've got a responsibility to engage companies, investment managers, but also policymakers on this topic of making sure that we don't suffer from the curse of short-termism when, in fact, our liabilities are very long. So that was quite a foundational idea. Another foundational thought in these investment beliefs was number four, and where we say long-term value creation comes not from managing one form of financial capital, which is traditionally thought of as the job of an investor. I have this money, where do I put it? To make sure that when it comes back to me, there's more, not less than I started with. There's a basic investor proposition. But what we recognized is that financial capital is only part of the story. And that we also need to be thinking about human capital. And it's an obvious statement if you've ever thought about life or staring out of the window, how do things get done? People are involved at every turn. But the third form of capital that we identified was physical capital. And we are recognizing both the importance of natural capital, as economists would call it, which is our ability to rely on supplies of water, natural resources, not just water, but things like rare earths and even agricultural land, and extending that out, you can even start thinking about things like the weather, to be blunt. If the weather lets you down, there's a whole cycle of investment that just falls apart. We see that on an increasingly regular basis. So we now have this investment belief that says long-term value creation comes from the management of three forms of capital, financial, human, and physical And to be blunt, this is really just old-fashioned economics, which is how I got into the whole world of investment in the first place. When you're taught economics, your theory of the firm or the company, as it might be called these days, really involves looking at fixed assets, labor, and capital, who's thought of as financial capital. But what we were doing for CalPERS in reframing this was saying, simply by following the money isn't going to be enough. We've actually got to start thinking about human capital and physical capital. So I know around that time, the acronym ESG became popular, but it's not something I think that ever has suited us very well because ESG has got one letter missing for a pension fund and that's F for finance. And there's an assumption that you can be a specialist in E or S or G or maybe all three together. And somehow that's going to enable you to make investment decisions. And I think for a pension fund, you have to start off with what's the point of it all? We're here to pay pensions. So the financial side of what we're doing has to be primary. And then we have to think about all of these sustainability issues through that lens of having what gets called as a fancy word, fiduciary duty. In other words, legally, CalPERS has a duty to look after the interests of its pension fund members above anything else. And that both protects the fund from all kinds of interference, but it also means that we have to be 
thinking about paying pensions now. We pay about $24 billion in cash a year, every year, out in pensions at the moment. And we also have to be thinking about those members just leaving school, just leaving college, who are joining the scheme, who won't retire for another 30, 40, 50 years. So we've got to be able to be short-term and long-term at the same time. The other idea in the investment beliefs I'll just touch on was an idea about risk, reframing risk in the same way that we've reframed returns or value creation. We've got investment belief number nine, if you'd like to follow along, looking at these on the website. This investment belief says, for CalPERS, risk is multifaceted. Now, we don't mean this in a corny way, you know, like love is a many splendid thing. Risk is very multifaceted for CalPERS. What we're talking about is the fact that the traditional ways in finance of measuring risk don't capture all the risks to which we are exposed. So, for example, tracking error, that's one typical way of measuring risk. Volatility is another way. And we, like many other investors, have what we call a risk budget. Like, how much are we willing to tolerate by way of risk on those sorts of measures? But if we look more broadly, we obviously are exposed to risks that can't be tracked with those tools. And the examples in the investment beliefs on risk that we provide include climate change, demographics. Obviously, what's happening for our employers is extremely important because they have to put in a fair chunk of the money that's needed to keep the pension fund afloat. So in other words, we have an interest in understanding what's happening out there beyond the spreadsheets that capture the financial dimension of what we're doing. Because we're so large and we're so long-term, we are impacted by and also have the ability to influence the various factors that can make a difference on our investments. So I was involved in the work around developing these investment beliefs. And at the time, we were also interested to know what is it that really matters. We'd sort of done a counting exercise with the help of a consultant, Mercer's. Because there was a lot going on on environmental issues and labor issues, and we found nothing short of 111 different things going on at CalPERS, which had some connection to this human capital and physical capital agenda. So what we did next was a review of all the evidence. We took on a crowd of academics, ably led by Robert Jackson at Columbia, who you might now recognize because he's just stepped down as an SEC commissioner and a finance professor at UC Davis called Brad Barber. And they chaired a group of academics who reviewed, I think it was over 800 papers for us. And the idea of this was, is there evidence that one thing matters more than another? We have to, if we think we're going to pay attention to certain things in financial, human and physical capital, then that just means we just swim around in all of this and hope for the best. Well, we didn't. We wanted to be strategic and identify what it was that really mattered to a pension fund, because obviously that gives us certain obligations, certain timeframes, certain investment objectives that might be different from someone else or another organization. So what we found in this review of evidence was, first of all, that governance 
the idea of how companies are governed is fairly well connected to their financial performance, or certainly to everyone's satisfaction. In other words, if a company is badly governed, you can expect it to be badly performing. And this might all sound very obvious, but these insights were fresh at the time. The other thing that we found is that environmental issues were clearly important on occasion, but it was very hard to draw broad market-wide conclusions because there was such a poor set of data. In other words, the kinds of information that you could gather in on what companies were doing was more to do with, say, the state of environmental regulation than it was to do with what companies had to disclose in their report and accounts. So you would have a little bit of a patchwork quilt of information and out of that try to draw some conclusions. And then on the issue of human capital, it was even more difficult because there was even less available. There was plenty of rhetoric and warm words. Hard to find a company that doesn't say, our people are our greatest asset. But then you would have thought, if it is true, people are their greatest asset. You'd have a bit more information about what was going on. (laughs) But anyway, we accepted that it was the state of the art for what it was, more art than science. But Out of that, and this really then explains my second job at CalPERS, which was as the investment director to develop a strategy on sustainable investment. So what we did was decide that we had to take account of our size, of our long-term investment objectives, also the fact that in order to regain the lost ground during the financial crisis, at the time it was more than 7% on the investments, which is a huge constraint. If you look at another one of the top 10 funds, GPIF, the Government Pension Investment Fund of Japan, which works with us, we work together with them on many things, their target rate of return is less than 2%. And they don't have any current liabilities. That means they don't have to pay out $24 billion a year in cash, because you have to pay people's pensions in cash. And they're a buffer fund, which means they're there to kind of top up the government social security system. And they expect that the money will be needed in about 100 years. So all credit to the Japanese for thinking way ahead. But that means the job of the chief investment officer, Hiro Mizuno, who's just about to step down, who's done wonderful things on sustainable investment, but he's had room for maneuver that we don't have. because he's got to hit 1.9% rate of return and doesn't have to pay out any cash today or this year or next year. Whereas CalPERS has to hit 7% and we have to pay out close to $25 billion in cash every year. So starting with what's the point of it all? Why are you making investments? We'll then explain what the strategy is that you can develop and also what issues you focus on. What we decided were two sort of parts to the strategic plan. It's a five-year plan. We're halfway through it. The board adopted it in 2016. I think we were one of the first pension funds in the world to do such a thing, or at least we won a prize for doing it. So (laughs) I now make an apology to whichever other pension funds were being overlooked and maybe got there before us. But anyway, we won an award for innovation for putting together this strategic plan. Um, What have we got in the strategy? First thing we've got is six priorities 
out of the many, many, many options in front of us. And we took an issue with one issue for each of the three forms of capital. So on financial capital, we said our focus is going to be alignment of interest. And the idea behind that is unless you have alignment of interest, you will be, what is it? A fool and his money are soon parted. But unless you have alignment of interest, you're going to have all kinds of ways that you lose money, either because fees are too high, time horizons are wrong. There can be all sorts of ways that money gets squirreled out of companies rather than paid back to the shareholders. Anyway, alignment of interest. And we focused first on private equity because that asset class is particularly challenging in terms of the so-called limited partners are both protected by that role. As you know, you're in Silicon Valley, you know how this whole works. But also getting alignment of interest or or comfort that you have alignment of interest is tricky because you don't have a line of sight into the portfolio. Second issue was human capital. And there we felt that there was reasonable evidence to demonstrate something that was also very close to CALPA's core values, which is that diversity and inclusion are signs of a high-quality board and high-quality boards oversee high-performing companies. And so we set ourselves some targets, particularly around improving board diversity, and we've had a fair amount of success with that. Then the third issue was climate change. And I'll explain in a bit perhaps more about what we're doing on climate change because it's a flagship area of work for CalPERS and we have just elevated climate change to be one of the three top risks facing the organisation which I can say more about in a minute. We had three cross-cutting themes, not topics, if you like. One was research. In other words, we knew we had to keep looking at research, and we did repeat the review of evidence a couple of years later and looked at another 1,000 papers, which was since published. It shows it's a very rapidly growing area of work. The next issue was manager expectations. We thought we needed to articulate very clearly what we expect from our managers, both internally and externally, on these issues. And thirdly, was that we would push very hard for the inclusion of reporting on these topics that we'd identified as relevant for long-term risk and return. And that meant that we would be raising a voice with regulators and also working on voluntary best practice models as well. But ultimately, we genuinely think until all of this tracking of performance on sustainability factors, until that's out in the market, we're going to have mispricing of risk. We'll have poor decision making by investors because it's a question at the moment of how long is a piece of string? You don't know what's good, bad or indifferent when you've got these voluntary measures for reporting, you get a lot of false positives. The old example in a statistics class would be a sign of its times. Do you beat your wife? And surprisingly, nobody does, even though the evidence is to the contrary. So if you have that kind of voluntary reporting without any auditing or validation, you're going to get a lot of false positives. Or maybe that is the better example Every late woebegone, where all the women are strong, the men are handsome, and every child is above average. Well, we've got a kind of late woebegone problem with 
corporate reporting at the moment on sustainability factors because we don't have standards and we don't have requirements and we don't have auditing. And you mentioned that climate risk is one of the top three risks facing the firm. What type of climate risk are you seeing and how is that risk allocated? I should say climate change for CalPERS poses risk, but it also poses opportunity. And it's managing to mitigate or make sure you're rewarded for the one and at the same time deploying capital into those opportunities. So what we've said in our strategic plan on sustainable investment is that we've got three channels for tackling the priorities that we've identified, climate change being one of them. The first is that we can be an advocate. In other words, CalPERS can partner with other big investors and call on regulators to do the things that are needed to make the market work efficiently or more efficiently than it does at the moment. So on climate, the two issues that we're focusing on is one, climate risk reporting and making that mandatory and standardized. And we're hopeful that this is going to become a recommendation out of COP26 back in my home country. It'll be in the UK in November 2020. That will probably move more quickly through the international accounting standards known as IFRS. We have a different path mapped out in our thoughts about how it will work in the US. The SEC has appointments which are made on a party political basis in the United States. So the role of the regulator in the US is more influenced by party politics than perhaps some other markets are, and that affects what's possible on climate risk reporting in the near term. But you said that you have a 100-year time frame and that climate risk, if not addressed, will affect returns. And so I'm just wondering, in what way will it affect returns? Why is it a threat to those returns in a 100-year time frame? Well, it's affecting returns now. I mean, you'll have seen PG&E's bankruptcy. You'll have seen Peabody Coal collapse. So, as I said, we're both short-term and long-term. We're short-term because we have to pay pensions now, every year. and We're long-term because we will have pensioners for the next 100 years. So the approach that we're taking on climate change, I'll just explain. So the first is that we need rules of the game. We want carbon pricing. We want subsidies for fossil fuels removed. Mm-hmm. And we also want mandatory risk reporting because right now the market's getting a lot of false positives. So that's the advocacy track. The second is engagement. And that's where we can use our ability as an owner of companies to team up with others and using that role as a share owner, call on these companies to get their strategies in line with the Paris goals. Why does it matter to us? Because we read the science and pay attention to it. The science tells us that there will be tremendous disruption, transition risk as it gets called, where companies can't adapt as the economy and society changes around them, but also physical risk, which is where companies, as well as communities and wider society, will be affected by what's happening through, for example, wildfires, drought, rising sea levels, and it's already now quite evident that these changing weather patterns are already costing money, both through insurance, through the physical impact on buildings, through efforts to retrofit assets. You can add all that up and already see that there's an enormous amount of financial impact, never mind the human suffering. 
We've got a third track in our strategy, which is called integration. And that's where we take what we understand through the science and we use that to look at our portfolio and particularly where the assets are. So one of the things we've done is what's known as carbon footprinting. I don't know where footprint ever came from, but anyway, it's essentially working out how much carbon or greenhouse gas emissions, carbon equivalents as well, like methane and so forth, how much is actually coming out of the investments that you hold in your portfolio. And we've done a carbon footprint for about 90% of our portfolio so far, which I think puts us ahead of many. But what we've found out of that process is although this is the source of the emissions, which makes sense of us calling for the regulation, it makes sense of us doing the work on engagement, it doesn't tell us where our assets that we hold are going to get hit hard by the physical risks. So another project that we have, we've teamed up with Woods Hole by one of our external managers, Wellington. Well, what we're doing there is plotting zip code risk, as we're calling it, because everything going on in climate change happens ultimately to people, but it actually happens in a place. So place is everything. So what we're looking at is the probabilities of severe impact from climate change on a zip code that's connected to our assets. So if we will be able to plot what the science tells us is the probability of sea level rise, severe weather impact, wildfires, drought, and so forth. And we've started with the US, but obviously the science is global. So ultimately we should be able to plot this. Now, what that means is you may not know precisely when one of these events is going to hit you, but the risk, and that's what risk is all about, is looking at what you estimate the future probability and impact of something that hasn't yet happened. So it's an imperfect science because it's the future hasn't happened yet. And I'm sure Yogi Berra must have said that at some point. But because the future hasn't happened yet, and as every regulator tells you on every investment you might ever buy, the past is no guide to the future. We are in the world of estimates and guesstimates. And the fancy word for that is scenarios. And in the climate risk reporting that we support and that we think should become mandatory, you look at possible versions of events in the future and think about what the impact of that might be and also then about how you can protect your assets or protect your investments in the event that those things do hit. But I think the science is compelling on all of this. The urgency that we feel at the moment is that we don't have 100 years to get this sorted out. The temperature rise accomplished so far since the Industrial Revolution puts us on the brink of some tipping points in the physical systems and from which many think there's no return. So between now and 2050, we've committed to our portfolio being net zero, but we can only do that because we're so big if the wider economy is at net zero. So that explains why we have this sense of urgency on regulations and reporting, but also why we've helped to set up initiatives like Climate Action 100 Plus to make engagement more effective. And then addressing zip code risk in our own portfolio is how we can, we hope, protect assets that ultimately are needed to pay pensions. So leverage then is that as a very large institutional investor in these companies, that if they don't get on the path of Paris or the path that 
you believe that they need to be that you'll divest your ownership from those companies? I think they would absolutely love that if we did. Because when you divest, you walk away. I'll tell you a story. We sold our shares in a company some years ago for a completely different reason. And the chairman wrote me a personal letter to say it's our policy not to communicate with shareholders. But I feel on this occasion, I must do so. And to let you know that when we heard that Calpers sold its shares, it was a cause for celebration. And in the boardroom, we all raised a glass. Sort of good riddance, basically. So the idea that divestment punishes a company or changes it, I think is very hard to sustain these days. Because if Calpers divests, what that basically means is I, we will sell to another investor. And like as not, an investor who may or may not care about climate change. So very little money these days is raised for companies through the secondary markets. The secondary markets are where one shareholder buys or sells shares for another. But all of that can take place merrily on a daily basis, as it does in what is known as liquidity. That's how easily can you buy and sell shares. So our strategy is different. It's that we team up with the other shareholders in a company And as the owners, we have a responsibility to make sure that that company is, one, not causing or contributing to a systemic risk that's going to cause damage to our pension fund. Secondly, to hold those back to that governance thing, hold that board of directors accountable. Got it. So through voting and through pulling the interests of a wide percentage of the eligible voters? Yeah. So what we've done on climate change is set up this initiative called Climate Action 100 Plus. And the reason these 100 companies were identified came out of the carbon footprinting, which we undertook just before the Paris Agreement. And credit to a brilliant investment manager here at Calpers, Divya Mankikar, who led this work, we found that in the 11,000 companies that we held shares in, less than 100 produced the majority of the emissions, which is shocking. I mean, who knew? Well, certainly until we looked at the data, we didn't. But what that gave us was an insight into the fact that the production of greenhouse gases is very, very concentrated in a relatively small number of companies worldwide. So we had a series of meetings behind closed doors, hosted generously by the French mission to the UN, basically to share this analysis with other big investors and say, look, if this is true for us, it could well be true for you because we're all similarly invested in these global markets. So the idea was we then rejiggered the analysis a little bit. And when we did it for ourselves, we looked at what known as scope one and scope two emissions. So imagine it's an oil company. Scope one is, well, what kind of emissions are produced when you're drilling for oil? And then scope two, well, when you're refining that oil, you're using loads of electricity and and other energy sources to do that. Scope two is when you're refining that product, what are the emissions associated with that? But scope three is what then happens when people or utilities or businesses use that refined oil and put it into their cars or airplanes or gas burners or oil burners. What about those emissions? And that's known as scope three. So what we did out in this project, we say, agree with quite a big group of other investors and investor networks 
like Ceres, PRI, and their equivalents in Europe, Australia, and Asia, while we were putting this together, said, well, we can't miss out scope three. Now, we appreciate that's quite tricky to count. But what we did by including scope three in the analysis, we boosted our capture of relevant emissions from just over half to nearly two-thirds. So this 100 companies is responsible for about two-thirds of estimated industrial emissions globally. Now, there's government emissions, there's stuff we can't invest in, that's another thing. But taking all that into account, on the back of an envelope, we think this is about a third of global emissions. So question then is, what can you do about it? So we've identified three things that all of these companies need to do. The first is to make climate change transition a responsibility of the board of directors. And that essentially is so we can hold them accountable. The most important job of a shareholder ultimately is to make sure that the board of directors is competent and independent, diverse, and on this occasion, climate competent. And also wrapped into that, we want to make sure the company overseen by the board is not engaged in political lobbying that undermines the goals of the Paris Agreement and also isn't giving people financial rewards for doing other things. We want the bonus system, the compensation, as it calls, remuneration in the UK, we want that to include reducing emissions in line with Paris. The second thing we're asking, so number one is a governance goal. Number two is targets. So we are saying for these companies, and remember, these are the biggest global emitters, so this is not an easy thing to ask, but we're saying we've got to have you at net zero by 2050. And then the third is tell us all about it. We want disclosure in line with the framework that goes by its acronym TCFD, but the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, which Mark Carney, Governor of the Bank of England, brought into life and which currently sits as a voluntary reporting framework, but we hope is going to be recommended as a mandatory reporting framework coming out of COP26. So where have we got to? So in terms of investors signing up, we're just under the 40 trillion dollar mark for investors signed up for Climate Action 100 plus. That makes it the biggest ever shareholder engagement effort that's ever been tried. That's also put a huge challenge in place, which is how to get organized everywhere from Japan to Jakarta to the US and Canada and Europe and back again. But anyway, we welcome that challenge. And the second thing to report is on results. And we've got more than a dozen of those companies now which have committed themselves to net zero by 2050. Most recently, you will have seen BP, the new chief executive coming in. And we've also got companies like BP reviewing and also pulling out of trade associations, which are not aligned with the Paris goals, and revamping all of their compensation plans. So the top 14,000 executives in BP will be rewarded for achieving the target reduction. But it's not just oil companies. We've got big commitments from oil companies, particularly in Europe, but we've also got the world's biggest private cement company, Heidelberg Cement, on board. Nestle, much known for its chocolate milk and other sweeties, but has a very long agricultural supply chain. One of our plus list companies, they've agreed. And a growing number of utilities in the US, including Duke Energy, which was always viewed as a very tough nut to crack, and others. So we gave ourselves a five-year cycle 
for getting this work done with Climate Action 100 Plus. We've made some terrific progress, but one of the things on our mind is how are we going to have real impact in markets where shareholders are very weak because of state ownership of companies or state influence? So that's opening up the fact that alongside this, we can't abandon the focus on the regulatory and the legislative side. We need to be advocates on the rules as well as effective engagers. There's a website that you can go to to find out more from our progress report, who the signatories are, what the companies are, and how we're generally organized around that work. Are there specific policy initiatives that you're putting your weight behind as an organization? Yes. On the policy front, we're part of something called the Investor Agenda, which is a parallel initiative to Climate Action 100+. And at the top of our list of things that need to be done are carbon pricing and removal of subsidies for fossil fuels, which run at about a $250 billion a year. And both of those, the lack of a price on carbon and the subsidies to the fossil fuel industry together mean that you've got skewed incentives for the transition. These are both putting a big drag on the progress towards meeting the Paris goals, for sure. And what about kind of, I don't know if it's fair to call it a sister effort, but some of the employee shareholder activism that you're seeing at Amazon and some other larger organizations, do you think that's a good thing? Is it a distraction? Can it be effective? I think any shareholder that's awake and paying attention and asking questions and holding companies accountable, that's a good thing for every other investor in the market. So whether it's an employee investor, a small shareholder, somebody going to their mutual fund that invests their 401k or a pension fund like CalPERS, we all need this financial system to work. Nobody's investing just to give money away. I think that if they are, there are a very small number of them. Most investors have got some serious purpose in mind, whether it's to pay a pension or pay off a mortgage or save for their retirement or save for a rainy day. There is, in a book that we've just published with two professors at Columbia, the final chapter, we call it the common wealth. In other words, the common wealth is the wealth that's been created by working communities around the world, and we need the financial system to serve that broader purpose. Financial services was always envisaged, as the name suggests, to be in service to the real economy, and the real economy is full of real people who live in real places. So this idea of the common wheel, which is a very old-fashioned word, but it's at the root of the concept of the commonwealth. We want the common good to be the ultimate purpose of the financial system. For us, it's very specific because we need to pay pensions. We have a social purpose absolutely embedded in what CalPERS is here to do in the financial markets. But we can only achieve that purpose of paying pensions if we make the 7% and if we make the cash to pay pensions every year. And if we're still going to be here in 100 years, still paying pensions for the future members, those who are not yet joined the system. I know relative to these big companies that we've been talking about, the alternative assets are quite a small percentage of your holdings, but how do you think about innovation as it relates to helping address the problems of climate change and what areas of innovation and what stages of innovation and what types, whether it be deployment or breakthrough technologies, do you feel can be most impactful? Well, innovation is essential 
And it's not just in the alternative asset classes, which for us are real assets and private equity. We actually have about 18% of all our private assets are in what gets called climate solutions, water storage, renewable energy, certified sustainable buildings, and so forth. So we've actually got some very significant exposure in the new industries and the new opportunities that the climate change transition is bringing. Innovation is also a very big part of what's going on in big companies. You look at even a great oil bruiser like Exxon, they've got $7 billion decked on carbon capture and storage. Now, that's a topic in its own right about what carbon capture and storage could or would or might contribute to the net zero by 2050. But that is not to be sneezed at. And if you look at the innovation and renewables portfolio of some of the other big oil and gas majors, they've got very big portfolios relative to what's going on with small companies outside. So I think both of these are needed. Certainly for the rapid take-up and scaling up, you need the big companies. You're going to need those big companies to deploy at scale. But also you can't, especially being in California, you can't avoid the fact that innovation is going to make a huge contribution to saving the day. If we don't get that innovation, veggie burgers and bicycles aren't going to do it for us. I've heard one school of thought is that in order for the markets to wake up to the problem that essentially they need to feel pain. So for example, if there's real estate that's mispriced due to climate risk, a hedge fund that shorts that those real estate holdings, for example, might accelerate the transition. So while there might be profit, it would actually help the cause. How do you think about that? I mean, how do you balance kind of profiting on doom versus speeding up the natural course of the markets? Well, powerful forces in the markets and to get those markets working with us, we need the reporting, we need the data. We don't invest in hedge funds at CalPERS. They were shut down some years ago. But I would say that the market purpose of shorting is price discovery. And there are bruising and brutal episodes for companies when that's going on. But it needs to be properly regulated so that hedge funds are not profiting from doom that they've helped create. But the price discovery point, to me, makes complete sense because if an investor has got an insight into a risk or a mispricing of assets, then they're doing the rest of the market a service if they're exposing that. This is really something under discussion at the moment in relation to things like stranded assets. You only have to go now not to some environmental activist, but to go and read the Lex column in the Financial Times to find a number, an eye-popping number of $900 billion, which they estimate on the back of their pink FT envelope to be at risk of being stranded. In other words, if we're going to hit the budget on global warming, those assets cannot be burned, cannot be sold, and that therefore implies a re-evaluation of those balance sheets. Now, certainly... Helping the market with pricing, with price discovery is something everybody benefits from. So normally I ask people if they had $100 billion and they could allocate it towards anything to maximize its impact in the climate fight, where would they put it and how would they allocate it? You actually have 
around 400 billion. So it's maybe a moot point. But if you had those funds separate and distinct from the investment activities of CalPERS, where would you put it? The first thing I have to say is that $100 billion could go into the CalPERS pension fund and get it back to full funding, just about the right amount of money. And I think what that would mean is that if CalPERS is not chasing a 7% target, it would be able to play a different role in terms of the long-term obligations of the fund. But until we get back to full funding, we are constrained in a way that if you were having this conversation with GPIF or, say, one of our sister funds in Europe has a discount rate of 3%, your investment objectives look very different. So if you could repeat that $100 billion top-up to the other pension funds that are underfunded following the financial crisis, you sort of build a very committed financial sector decked on the long term. And that would be powerful in terms of meeting climate change goals. Yeah. And it sounds like since I have one final question to ask, we don't have time to cover it now, but you could spend a good amount of time, probably a whole episode, just talking about what would be the differences in your behavior with the smaller discount rate versus the bigger discount rate. But maybe we'll save that for chapter two. My last question is just, A lot of the people listening to this podcast are people that are committed to working on this problem at the systems level, but they are coming in fresh and they don't necessarily understand it, nor do they know how their skills are most transferable. So speak to them for a moment. What advice do you have as they're trying to figure out how to have the biggest impact personally as they seek to reorient the next phase of their careers in this area? Everybody is a consumer. We all eat. We all pay rent or mortgages. So I think working out what you're going to do as a consumer is important. So whether you want to move towards a more plant-based diet, whether you've got the financial ability, I mean, I should just say that meat is more expensive than vegetables. So it doesn't something that favors people with a big salary. But I think what we do as consumers is really important. So if you're buying shampoo or scrubbing off thick layers of makeup with plastic micro beads or whatever you might be doing. I think my three kids absolutely on this get woke old folk, as they say to me when they're being cheeky. So I think the consumer power on this is huge. What that means is you need to get informed. And that's why your podcast, Jason, is important. But I don't think we're short of places you can go to find out what's going on. There are apps these days which can tell you what's going on, what's good on climate change or human rights or what's happening with everyday products. Do not underestimate the power of the customer. And the second thing, in most markets around the world, people are citizens and they have a vote and they have an ability to hold their own representatives accountable in the political system. So we need to make sure that people are using the political process to get the policies in place that are going to make it possible to meet the Paris goals. And on that, I do want on the consumer side to just come back to the question of finance because many people have investments that they don't know very much about. They might have a pension fund, they might have a savings account, and they may be using one of the big Wall Street names or one of the big high street names. But it's very important as a customer in the financial system 
to make sure that you know where your money's going and how those fund managers are exercising their votes at these companies on your behalf. And I think, therefore, the name of the game is transparency and accountability. And one reason a lot of these problems don't get solved is because what's happening is going on behind closed doors and people don't understand. But, you know, I'm an optimist. I have great faith in the ability of people to make change and to look at what's happened in human society over the last 200 years. It's pretty incredible. Well, this is just the latest challenge in human civilization and we need to get it sorted. So that's where I see tremendous potential. Nothing will change without ordinary people getting involved. Well, I think that's a great point to end on. And we covered a lot in this episode. And I thank you so much for making the time and coming on the show. It's my pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.